Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. As a vast memory capacity. This is not a computer simulation. Most unusual. Are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Good. You've covered all the bases. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. Our priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. Thank you, as always, to Kate Kingsmill for the last three hours. The Distance Guy will be back from 4 to 7 p.m. next Wednesday. But right now, you are tuned in to Bite Into It on 3 R. I'm Lily Ryan. Joining me tonight, we have Ash behind the mics. Hello, Ash. Hello, Lily. Pleasure to be here. And behind the panel this evening, we have the excellent Carl Chapman. How are you doing? Hello. How are you? Yeah, doing all right. This is normally the time where I'd ask you uh, how your week in tech was, but I think we'll get into that in the news in a little bit because, as I understand it, both of you are Optus customers. So uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, but tonight we're speaking with Dr. Jay Jong from Deakin University about Australia's national digital ID scheme, what's been proposed the issues it's supposed to solve, the decades of controversy around the idea. After that, um, we'll revisit the world of blockchain and cryptocurrencies and where they're at now, the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, some of the NFT news from over the weekend, and what that all means in the larger scheme of things. But before we get into that, I did promise some news. Top of the list, today's Optus outage. How'd you all go? Yeah, I'm um, I'm house sitting at the moment, and I woke up this morning with no mobile coverage and with yeah um, no the router yeah at, at where I am um, not working. So I was like, oh, this is strange. No mobile and no Wi-Fi. What's going on? I actually pulled my SIM card out and um, you know and turned my phone off and on a couple of times um, before kind of thinking, oh, the Wi-Fi is not working. There's yeah, there's something bigger to this going on. Was it was it a really kind of peaceful waking up? Was it birdsong? And- <laughs> um, I mean, I was trying to check the weather. I, I, I knew it was going to be hot, but, yeah. I, but I was trying to see, I guess, it was, if it was going to like thunderstorm at like three o'clock or something like that, Yeah. Um, which, you know, I guess it did a little bit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, how, how was it for you, Carl? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I had no mobile, but I had Wi-Fi at home so I could see and see the news that there was an outage. But if you don't have any connectivity at all you don't even know that there's an outage no um hence of course you're pulling out your sim card and thinking what's going on it must be me it was really strange um yeah um i don't think that's happened you know ever like beyond being on a plane or being you know underground or something i was like no i actually have no connection right now and this is incredible because i think there are so few options for us when that happens i know that flights for example are are one of the main places where i feel like i can properly relax i can switch off because nobody expects me to be contactable at all for however long this flight takes the introduction of in-flight wi-fi is something i'm choosing to ignore for the most part (laughs) um but to wake up, I mean, I assume there are a lot of people who would have said, hey, look, this is great. I can't work. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, I had a few, like, I had stuff, work to get done today and I was thinking like, oh, okay, I guess this gives me a, a bit of extra time to, not really, but, you know, an excuse or something. Um, I think I was, uh, you know, I, I was also thinking back to um, the chats, some of the chats that Dan and I were having, I think it was last week on the show, mm. um, regarding the availability of alternative providers um antennas for for mobile roaming in, in oh, emergencies right, yeah. and i think i read something um yeah today saying that 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 you know 
SOS emergency calls weren't working for a lot of people on Optus services? Well, that's, yeah, that's the real downside, right, is that we have so much that depends on a lot of this infrastructure and quite a lot of it's Telstra, but not all of it is. Optus is <laughs> number two, second comes right after first. So that's definitely, uh, what else with the train system the in Melbourne? The trains were out. Yeah. I believe it might have been related to signaling signaling infrastructure and I can only assume the trains did come back online, so maybe they were able to switch to a backup system or solution yeah yeah i think i read that it was potentially like the the backup system that's run on the optus network um but it you know there were issues with the trains up until 5 a.m and it was Mm. you know across the whole board um which is just massive and and so disruptive um on top of yeah, the the many business just you know disruptions to business and personal services. Right, and um, payment the whole train network would go down. Yeah, yeah, F cost machines, all of those things, just people not being able to to make withdrawals or pay for stuff at the shops. Like, I I haven't actually seen the news to know what kind of business cost that has been, but I know that that's usually one of the stats that comes out of something like this. Is cost such and such billions yeah. of dollars in productivity or sales or revenue or whatever oh there's no doubt there was a shop i was in some shops this afternoon and most of them uh didn't have fpos and if you i mean who carries cash these days right Um, and so you either had to go and find cash or you they lost the business yeah i I was offering to do like a bank transfer on my phone but they said well we don't even that you know the staff don't know the bank details for the company so they couldn't yeah and how would they check well i mean i could have shown them a transaction confirmation on the phone but uh, it's yeah, it's not ideal, is it? No, no. It's just I'm also thinking about that waking up experience that you had, Ash. Um, I can't remember the last time that I would have woken up without something, you know, beeping at me or something that I had <laughs> set up the day before. And I saw a, somebody had posted on oh, I can't remember what social media, one of them, that they had heard someone talking about being woken up by their cat because the cat had this automated cat feeder that would dispense the food every day but it was wi-fi connected and it had gone down (laughs) so the food didn't get dispensed so the cat came to wake the human up and that was how they found out about the optus um outage that's incredible i love i love that yeah train of yeah you know via pets yeah whether it's like your vacuum wi-fi or yeah in this case like the pet feeder um which is yeah, set it connected to Wi-Fi. Um, well, again, at a cafe yeah. today, it was a Q, you know you order via a QR code. Well, of course, the QR code normally opens up a website on your browser, and then you place the order and yeah. pay. And so I had to go up and do it over the counter. It's not a hardship. I mean, I was quite happy to do that, <laughs> but it's just another example of where we almost don't realise how connected our everyday activities are. Yeah. If you're um, if you're also experiencing any of this, or you've had an interesting story from today, and your service is working, you can attempt to text us oh four double six nine eight one zero two seven. Be really interested to hear if you have any particularly, uh, you know, weird stories from from the outage today, or whether it was a good time for you, whether it was a frustrating time for you. Um, if you can't text us, I'm really sorry, but that that's another <laughs> casualty of the outage, I suppose. Interestingly, yeah. there are some texts here from Optus saying an SMS you try to send or receive has failed. What on the triple R systems? <laughs> so. Oh, beautiful. That's, yeah, that's quite unfortunate. But hopefully, yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully, we'll get some other text in. There have been others coming if in. People so have I a think... story. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, on uh, you know, in other news, um, if you if you were able to get online today, or even over the last little while, um, you know, there there have been a lot of things going on. And the second half of this show, we'll get into some of the news in a bit more depth. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about was um, the new AI chatbot that um, X, formerly Twitter, um, has come up with and announced is called Grok which is on their roadmap to be included in their premium subscriber services, part of Old Mate's attempt to get people to give him money for the thing he spent a billion to a million dollars on. Um, have you have you heard much about this one, Ash? Where's, where's the, that name come from, Grok? Is that like a like a superhero name or something? I don't, like, not that it's significant, but I'm just... No, it's a... Uh, well, I, I, it's ringing a bell in terms of like an 80s arcade game, possibly. Okay, I mean, that's yeah, vaguely... Yeah. There's, a, there's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference in there as well. Um, and, you know, the, the idea of grok something because, you know, you, you know it, you understand it very deeply kind of thing. I think that's the, okay, okay. the connection. Yeah. Um, I haven't... I, uh, yeah, I wasn't... I'm not always... I think I, I said this um, on, a, on a previous year. I'm not always across 
the um uh the elon um <laughs> latest um that's healthy that, that shows you lead a good life yeah i've got a little <laughs> bit of distance which which i think is a healthy distance um that i that i like to keep um but no so it's a it's a chat bot ai for twitter users uh for, sorry for x users of course yeah um i think the idea is that it has been trained on posts on tweets um and it is therefore you know a repository of, of human language and okay. human expression. So it should reply back at you based on the things that it knows from having done that because um, they have access to all of that data. And that's the thing that a lot of companies have pivoted towards is monetizing their own data in the age of large language models that that really need that data in order to actually exist and function. Um, and this is a, this is a subscription, uh, sorry, subscriber only uh, service is it apparently like it's yeah. been it's been announced as with a lot of things that get announced the timeline is kind of question mark as far as i understand <laughs> it but um apparently it's going to be uh for uh, what was it that musk was saying it's going to have it, it will answer the spicy questions quote unquote okay. um which i think means quite often that it just basically has pretty poor guardrails it's it's not going to filter a lot of its output for any particular type of sensibilities um so he said something about well it's not for people who don't have a sense of humor so i assume that basically if you're in any kind of minority group you probably want to stay away from it but yeah yeah no uh doesn't doesn't sound great i I don't really appreciate what it's going to provide to a community any community um yeah um i think you mentioned we were we were chatting off there and i think you mentioned you know in com- in comparison to like open ai um chat gpt some of these other um uh, what are we calling them uh large language models yeah um they you know with open ai they've got some you know some uh, restrictions built in or some kind of um um yeah Restrictions yeah. for want of a better word, yeah. Um, to to kind of protect users from, um, yeah, kind of uh, protect against users asking questions that you know are inappropriate to be asking uh, an AI um, mm. resource. Yeah, and and this one doesn't seem to have quite as many of those. There were examples where you would ask it to make a, you know, give it, ask it for instructions to make a drug, and it would kind of give you a bit of a joke about that. Say something like, "Oh, well, first you're going to have to go get a degree in chemistry, and then you're going to." But seriously, guys, it's illegal. So, haha. Um, and there are also a lot of arguments against some of these guardrails in models like ChatGPT, you know, GPT three point five and four, and all of those things because. Um, in order to train them to respond in certain ways, you also have to then encode a set of social values and expectations that aren't true for everyone. So, for example, when you're doing a lot of this content moderation stuff, Mm. um, people who are in minorities, queer folks, sex workers, a lot of those kinds of people often don't get to ask questions about their own identities because those kinds of questions can be considered outside of what most people, not most people, what some people, particularly the people running these services, think would be um, too risque or too dangerous, which, you know, so that in those ways, they can do a lot of harm. On the flip side... By actually having the guardrails in place because you're kind of filtering out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And on the flip side, of course, there's also just regurgitating the absolute worst trash of the internet. So, you know... (laughs) No, no, no. And and yeah, um, I'm not an avid X user or a Twitter user previously, but um, yeah, just, just, just from the things that, that get shared through networks that I know have been on there, like there's, yeah, it's a, it's a frightening kind of pool of just everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially right now, um, considering that there haven't been many resources put into moderating much of the content that is put out by users. And because the the checkmark verification mechanism that used to be something that was manually given to accounts that were notable and there were problems with that model um but now is something that you can purchase paid feature yeah yeah Yeah. um so it makes it quite difficult to tell what accounts are authoritative or credible when they're putting this information out um and so it, it has been i mean particularly when we've got multiple wars on and natural disasters and so on it's just it's a lot yeah um so, of course, you know, a text synthesizer is exactly what we need in, as part of that service. I'm sure I'm sure this will be fine. <laughs> um, um, yeah, go on. 
No, no, I, I, I don't. Yeah, I think I, I don't know that I was going to tack much on there. It's more <laughs> just a shared, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah, shared sigh at the state of the world. On that note, um, perhaps we could uh, take a bit of a break and go to a song. What do we got, Carl? We have Sui Shen with uh, Matsudo City Life. Awesome. Melbourne's own Triple R. It is 7.19pm and you're on Bite Into It on 3 Triple R with Lily Ash and Carl. Joining us now is Dr. Jay Jong. Dr. Jong is a researcher for Deakin University and the Cybersecurity Cooperative Research Center with a focus on both digital ID technologies and the influence of sociocultural factors on the development of national cybersecurity capabilities. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Wonderful being here. We're very excited. Um, and honestly, this is this is a topic that's got quite quite some history. You know, it's, it's another year starting with the numbers 2.0. It's another day ending in Y. It's about time for the, you know, for everyone to talk again about the digital ID system. It's been in the works for however many years. So this is the scheme that's intended to make things more convenient, you know, give everybody one ID in one place for the whole country, make sure you're only sharing the parts of your ID with the organizations that need it. You don't have to carry cards. What, what does it actually mean? So I think there needs to be a differentiation between a national ID scheme and a digital ID scheme. Um, the government's kind of pivoted towards the latter, where this is a digital ID scheme, uh, where you have uh, the government issuing certain credentials that you can use to access services, but also accredit other businesses, local state governments, other entities, and give them a level of assurance that they can issue their credentials, which is trustworthy as well. So it's multifaceted in that sense. Um, as you said before, um, it has been a long time in the making. I think the first attempt here in Australia was in the mid-80s with Australia Card, which was a great deeming success. <laughs> <laughs> um, regarding the digital ID proposition that we're hearing in the media today, um, this has been in the works since 2015. Oh, yeah? Um, so it's been, been around for a while, and uh, from my last cost estimate, it's, it's around $600 million that have been invested into this uh, digital ID well, proposition. Well, mm. is that the... I, I'm just being reminded of this app that I had to download at some point a couple of years ago for like a government uh, yeah, ID providing thing. Is, is this like the one, like is that Yeah, it's confusing, isn't it? Because you've got MyGov ID as well. I don't think it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had to download that one for another um, thing. So I, I'll try Which is to, different to MyGov, isn't it? MyGov is different from MyGov ID and this is a completely different proposition altogether. Cool, 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 okay. cool. So MyGov is mostly for businesses who want to access the government services and, you know, do their taxes online or it's for accountants making sure that they are um, uh, they are actually legitimate accountants. They actually can do tax returns on behalf of clients. MyGovID is a central login system where you use it to access government services um, such as Centrelink, your Medicare card. So it's just the one, it's kind of like a single sign-on service. Um, what they're proposing now is kind of a step ahead of that or above that where instead of um, – so there are examples, right? So you go to certain websites and you can use your Google Gmail account. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, um, like uh, you can log in and create an account. Correct. Yeah, or Apple ID or Apple whatever. ID. Yeah. Um, the problem with that is that um, I can create a Gmail account in five seconds and then use that to access services from the service provider's end. They don't know if I'm a legitimate customer or not, you see. Right. So if you have the same facility, but the government's backing that, right, this is a legitimate person with a legitimate identity provided, then as a service provider, um, I am able to have a, a level of assurance that you're not fake, pretty much. And what, uh, what has made it take, you know, from 2015 to now? Mm. So again, the, the pivot on whether this is a national identity system or mm. is a digital identity system, that's one complexity. There's been a few pivots during the journey. Um, the actual um, biggest stumbling block is actually legislative and regulatory. Um, I don't know if the listeners are aware that um, all of your personally identifiable information in Australia is actually held at a state level. So think about birth, deaths, and marriages. Your mm -hmm. birth certificate, your marriage certificate, and your death certificate are all held by a state level. Right. They're not. They're not federal. That's not. Yeah. Um, even your driver's license is actually at a state level. 
Yeah, that one. I mean, that one I'm aware of because they all look so different. Yeah, and you see one from exactly interstate, right. and you're like, "What's this funny thing?" So, um, in the, it, it, from a federal level, they actually are not able to hold or retain details about yourself um, as a citizen. Then some people might argue, "What about a passport?" Right? Mm. But a passport is actually a travel document, and only one third of Australians actually have a passport issued. A good example of making sense of this is um, have a look at your Medicare card. Mm-hmm. There's no date of birth. There's no biometric details embedded into your Medicare card. It's just a name with your number on it if you have multiple people on that card. Right, and that's that's a federal Medicare card, Correct. but it's not it's not got that that information in Correct. it. But what about um, so? This isn't a federal thing. How does that work when you're looking at a national scheme? Yep. So this is where the complexities lies. Um, you need the, the federal government needs the state governments to collaborate with them and cooperate with them. Okay. <laughs> um, but then every every single state has its own digital ID platform. Um, so here in Victoria is very different from New South Wales. So New South Wales had have taken a very different approach to digital ID uh, under Victor Dominello uh, and Services New South Wales. So they went through a uh, notion of um, something called verifiable credentials and self-sovereign identity. And a good way of putting that together is uh, imagine the number of identity cards in your wallet. So right. you have your driver's license, you have your bank card, you have a credit card perhaps, you have your Medicare card. And although there is an issuer for those cards, how you use those cards to authenticate yourself or identify yourself is completely up to you. So, for example, you wouldn't rock up to a bank and show them your Medicare card to access your accounts. Mm. Um, and vice versa, you wouldn't go to your GP and show your credit card as a means to show that you are wanting to see a doctor. Right, okay. Um, so uh, the verifiable credentials model closely resembles and mimics how we authenticate ourselves in real life, that you have an issuer, you hold the cards in a digital credential wallet, and then you actually submit the identity that you want to submit to access the service that you want. So mm-hmm. how how would that work? And I realize you, you've mm. already said, you know, this is how the complexity comes mm. into it. But different states have some different ways of collecting information, different gender markers, Correct. for example, yep. that don't match up. And yep. we've seen that become an issue mm. where some systems in some areas um, don't have like a non-binary gender marker, for example, and that causes mm. a lot of issues for people trying to sign up for those services yeah. um in the way that this is intended to be synthesized um is there is there a governing body helping everybody coordinate yep and this is what the federal government is proposing so they have released something called the trusted digital identity framework and uh-huh. this was a few years ago so they're saying right these are a list of standards that everyone needs to follow to be authenticated and this gives a bit of a a, a, a uh, you know, everyone conforms to it, so there's some sort of standardization in the digital identity or authentication process. Um, it closely resembles what's happening in Europe with something called EIDAS, um, so, um, and, and that's been in the works for a few years. So if you think about the European Union, you have multiple countries with very different jurisdictions, mm-hmm. but you actually have one European um, Union-issued ID that you can use to access all the services across any jurisdiction. So think of um, the TDIF as a a close resemblance to IDAS. Uh Um, At the center of it, um, uh, the actual digital ID um, service is actually funded by the ATO. So, okay. Um, so that's just a bit of insight as to who's funding this project. Um, just recently, they've actually said who's the kind of the ombudsman that's going to be governing this, and the interim ombudsman for the TDIF and the digital ID scheme, from what I recall, was going to be the ACCC. When you have such, mm. you know, you're talking about the way that we use different IDs mm. in different places. You've got Medicare, you've got credit cards, you've yeah. got driver's licenses. All of these pieces of identification are also things that are not necessarily mandatory. You know, not everybody drives, not everybody has a driver's license, not everybody will have a bank account, for example. Um, how does the digital ID differ in those respects? And is it possible to opt out or to have parts of one? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and this is where it gets really complex, right? So if, if for example, if I'm, if I'm si- signing up to an e-commerce site to purchase a bottle of wine, so there's, a, you know, there's you know, alcohol delivery services out there, and um, they need to know that I'm over 18, and, and I, that's a legitimate reason why. Do I have to hand them over my entire 
identity profile or my personal mm-hmm. identifier information to be able to access that service? Or do they just need a marker which says I'm over 18, which is backed by or assured by an entity or a party that everyone can trust? Which should be the state government in that case. Or the, or the federal government right. is what they're, they're proposing. It needs to be at a federal level because mm-hmm. um, each state has its own mandate. Each, as you mentioned, each state has a very different criteria list. And so they're saying, right, we'll play that mediator role that we can uniform this across the board. Um, interestingly enough, we think about kind of you know, a side topic. Um, mm-hmm. Imagine if you have a fishing license in New South Wales. Mm. And you want to go fishing in Victoria, so you're you're near living near Yarrawonga, and you go across the footbridge, and you're going from New South Wales to Victoria every 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 five minutes sure. to catch fish. Um, is that current fishing license transferable between the states? If someone comes around and says, "Do you have the necessary fishing rights?" Mm. Right, it's it's one of those things where um, if we think about it a lot more broadly than the narrative that's kind of around, oh, we're going to you know stop all about privacy and security. Um, authentication is actually just one facet of identity systems. It's actually much more broader than that. So um, again, I'm not against the notion of a national ID scheme. I think it is necessary um, to, for convenience sake, as well as um, to assure that the people that we deal with online are actually valid in, um, individuals. So, for example, if you go to Facebook Marketplace or Gumtree, right? Mm. <laughs> how how do you know that person is actually real or not? Well, that's an interesting question too, because if you're if you're bringing it into that sphere, um, there's also the the way that for a lot of people, you know, people have fought pretty hard over a long time to not have, say, a Facebook account tied to their yeah. their real identity, and that's often for pretty good reasons too. Um, and there are a lot. You've mentioned privacy and security a bit, um, but there are a lot of considerations. And you talked about the the stuff that had happened in the '80s um, as a big part of. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's that's where a lot of this began, but there were privacy concerns then, mm. and and there continue to be now as well. Especially if we're talking about a a digital ID where everything's stored on servers somewhere. Yep. So, what kinds of considerations come into play here, and what are your thoughts? Yeah. So um, that's a really good question as well. Um, so what the government's proposing is what we call a federated system, where the issuer, the verifier. And the holder of all that data is one central entity. Okay. So, so everything's centralized, um, uh, and this causes something uh, what we call a single point of failure, which is a honeypot situation. Yeah. So if if that central server that retains all of that is breached, then we are all in trouble. And you might think, oh, but that's impossible. Well, Optus went out for twelve hours today. We had. Mm-hmm number of breaches um, last year with Medicare and even throughout the year. Um, there is a municipal in India where the actual central identity system was breached and 815 million digital identity profiles yeah. were leaked. So all of these kind of say, right, what are the contingency plans of protecting ourselves in the instance? Imagine, and, we're, and um, another fa- um, facet of my research is looking at the imbalance between um, state operated military units who are out there looking for vulnerabilities 24 7 Mm. and do we have the necessary resources to proactively protect ourselves from those adversarial attacks and again that's something that we need to consider if we are going to move into an environment where that's fine not to put in the conspiracy theory here the government has very good intentions for us to have a very trustworthy identity that we can use for multiple services and multiple purposes, and you know that will save us time and convenience. That's all great. But have they actually thought this through step by step on what happens if this goes wrong? Right. What? Yeah, um, I guess to jump in there. Yeah. What? Like you've been working at this since yeah. a long time. Since now. A, a long time, <laughs> I guess. Um, what are you? Yeah. What are your um, thoughts in terms of? Um, you know, are we checking the boxes in terms of making this as secure yeah. as possible or making it, it um, mm-hmm. um, secure enough? Um, and do you have any, I guess, um, thoughts on where perhaps this, I, like, I guess the boundaries of this identity scheme, where, where does that stop? Um, does it yeah. include things like Facebook or is it just, um, yeah, for, I guess, more public life? 
whether that's your driver's license yeah. and, and other licenses that I think people are entitled transparency to. and trust comes first Mm-hmm. And with we don't have that with government services, especially when it comes to digital. So we talked about MyGov ID and MyGov before. Mm. How many people really enjoy using it? And yeah. I, that's just a food for thought for you guys, mm. just all the audience. Just have a think. And I can hear quite a few swear words. <laughs> <laughs> um, but why is that the case? Right. So we haven't thought it through from what the user experience is and what the user needs are. Um, as c- constituents and people and citizens, what are the needs of Australians when it comes to digital ID? And then you build from the bottom up. Often when we talk about government initiatives and digital, we have a top-bottom approach that they have a, a fixed agenda or a mandate and then they work down towards it. Mm. And then when you come down the flow, there's a mismatch. A mismatch. And there's a, yeah, there's a yeah. discrepancy between the two. And this is what we're seeing in this digital ID. And every time they see a a new government comes in and there's a new agenda, guess what? They tweak it. And then hence why eight years later, um, we're still relatively in the same boat that we were in 2015, albeit $600 million later. There's a lot of confusion too around um, the the way that the federal government has also been looking mm. at identity matching and identity verification and building databases of biometric information for facial recognition purposes and biometric recogni- recognition purposes. And I think that this this issue is, um, is an interesting one because they were recently... Um, both the digital ID legislation framework and this identity matching legislation framework were both open for public comment at exactly the same time, which was kind of maddening in some ways because they're talking about very parallel things, but they're talking about them from very different points of view and also both talking about them in a space where with issues that are so closely tied to what people feel privacy should be, you know, privacy should be considered, um, but also knowing that we have a big legislative reform coming up for privacy later in the year where the current acts that these are being built upon will change. Um, I can I can see, personally, I was pretty confused at the time as well about how all of these things intersected and whether the government itself was actually aligned with its own goals. Yeah, the, the Privacy Act was written in the 1980s. That's the problem. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that the need for reform is pretty clear. Yeah. But the interesting part about this legislation, both pieces, um, is that it's, you know, they're, they're looking at this legislation before the reforms are occurring. Because, because again, um, for the federal government to retain your personal identifiable information, there needs to be drastic reforms in the legislative part mm. of it first for them to be able to even do this in the first instance. Remember that the reason why the states hold it is because the federal government doesn't have the authority to do so. So then the legislation needs to change where that authority somehow changed or moved from state to federal. And think about all of the different legislations and laws that this national identity scheme or the digital identity scheme kind of touches base on. And then it's, um, and then it's a number of different facets that you're talking about. Does that... Sorry, uh, I was just going to ask about, the, do we know much about the submissions that were made to on, on both of those legislative changes? There were two, is that Yeah, there mentioned? were. Yeah. So, it's uh, not something that I'm, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, um, there are a lot of concerns around a federated system from, from, from colleagues both in, that I'm, I'm very close to in both practice as well as in academia and research. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and one of these, um, it, we can take example from the recent reforms to the European Union's EIDAS that I mentioned before. So they're in the process of revising their um, EIDAS platform or their digital electronic identification um, framework. Mm-hmm. And uh, 350-odd um, academics and, and experts actually wrote a petition saying this is wrong. Okay. So one of the amendments was Article 45, if my memory serves me right, <laughs> on um, the the government being able to mandate whether you use or d- can delete or modify something called a root certificate. Mm-hmm. So a root certificate is something on your browser. So if you've looked at it, your web browser, whether it be Chrome or whatever, you'll see a little um, uh, safe icon on the left-hand side, and it just says that the website you're, or the service that you're accessing is secure, and then it's been certified by a uh, 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 proven entity. Now, um, the Article 45 stipulated that um, the government has full control over those root certificates on your browser. 
So, right. so is that now? And the the refute and the concerns was that's got nothing to do with authentication or identification. It has everything to do with monitoring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other problem is that's remember that it's one platform. So imagine your root certificate is issued by the French government. Um, uh, the Greek government can also monitor or snoop what you're doing with that root certificate if they wanted to as well. Mm-hmm. So are, I don't, I, I'm not saying it's been done intentionally or maliciously per se, but these are signs that we haven't thought th- things through carefully enough because identity is at, at its core of whatever we do online. The internet was never made for us to be proven who we are. In fact, internet was always based on the premises of anonymity, right? Right. No one owns the internet. Mm. But that notion has changed because as what we experience today, if the internet's gone or there's a network connection down, nothing operates anymore. So with regard to, to, you know, being able to prove who you are online, I can see ways in which this this scheme when put in place, would be something that would be used by groups like the Safety Commissioner, for example, yeah. to go through with things like, mm-hmm. well, you must be over 18 to watch pornography, for example. Does that mean then that, um, you know, it, it could then potentially along those lines lead to things like um, building a database of people who have gone mm-hmm. to those places and verified along those yeah. lines? So so how, how do we address mm-hmm. those kinds of concerns? So I, I, I just want to take a step back. When sure. we talk about privacy-preserving aspects of digital ID, mm. um, they don't need your date of birth to, to know that you're over 18. Sure. They only yep. need to know that your date of birth has been proven by a specific entity, mm-hmm. and the service provider, all they need to know is a tick, this person's over 18. Yeah. Right now, you have a yes or no button when you're accessing illicit or sensitive content. Sure. And then that's, I don't know anyone under the age of 18, sorry for the listeners who are under 18, who would press no in that instance. They all press yes. Sure. So what does that prove? What type of assurance is there anything around what I say, who I am online? You look at social media posts and places like Reddit. I'm a doctor or I'm a lawyer and Mm. I can give you advice online. But how do you know that person's legitimate or not? My question is, I guess, whether it matters and in what context. There are certainly places where I feel that it's really important for mm. people to be able to pretend to be yep. all kinds of things online yep. as a part of figuring out their sure. own identities. And sure. then there are places like online marketplaces, as you point out, sure. where it's really important to know that you're doing business with somebody who actually mm. exists. So there is a privacy spectrum. Mm-hmm. So certain. So we always talk about privacy as this one dynamic, dimensional switch where it's either yes or no. But there's, there's a privacy spectrum. So, for example, um, accessing the pub is a low privacy spectrum issue where mm-hmm. all you really need to do is prove your age is over a specific age limit. Mm-hmm. They don't need to know your name. They don't need to know your address. They don't need to know your mobile number. They actually don't need to know much about you. They just need to know your age. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you're, if you're trying to access your bank account details, what type of personally identifiable information is suffice for me to access that service. So there's a balance between privacy and security, that, and you consider that to be on the high ends of privacy spectrum. You're right. We all have a persona. Um, we all have things that we want to hide in digital environments as well. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, there, there sometimes there's um, you know, a need for us to remain anonymous and private online as well. Um, you know, whether it be um, searching for very sensitive topics around your medical conditions, you know, you don't want that history or log to be monitored or snooped or collected by anyone. Um, and that balance is where, you know, having these meaningful conversations around identity and not just talking about it in this very basic sense, right? I hope today at least um, uh, during our conversation there's been a level of depth and Mm. it's kind of given some food for thought on Mm. how important these changes are it's not just another service rollout this has got huge implications on how we go about our daily lives you see but if that's the magnitude of importance are we conversing are we debating are we consolidating are we synthesizing are we talking about this enough and i think i pointed out earlier i wrote an article in the conversation and a few media appearances four years ago and it was about 
the lack of conversation and the lack of awareness. And four years later, what's really changed? <laughs> mm. Do I guess um, I'm wondering, like, because you're mm. you're right in the in the midst mm. of this amongst it all, um, like. What, what processes are in place or, or need to be put in place to make sure that there's sufficient, um, I guess, analysis of, yeah, like the th- yeah, thoroughness of the steps that need to happen to make sure that what we're building is, is, is appropriate, doesn't have unnecessary kind of um, things in there like relating to, you know, this um, root, mm-hmm. um, sorry, is it the root? Yeah, the root certificate. Uh, root certificate. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Um, are you confident that, that yeah, that we... Have um, that we're following the right process to make sure that we that we get the, you know, a, a secure and appropriate um, outcome. I, I think we're making the right track. Um, we're on the right track, and mm. it, it is needed. Mm. Um, that's just my personal view. But mm. we do need a digital ID scheme, especially in Australia, where there's no social identity number or national identity number. To what extent that system is used for what is where most of the considerations and the conversations should appear. Mm-hmm. Um, a big push, and I mentioned that the key sponsor uh, of the project is the ATO, mm-hmm. is because the digital ID scheme has huge implications as we transition to a cashless society. Right. But then do you want how – pe- how comfortable are people when it comes to if a central entity knows where you're spending your money on? Yeah, and it's not just a record of every transaction. In Korea, for example, where I'm from, um, we have a social identity number, a social security number, um, and you see it in the news all the time when they're tracing down criminals. They do it through bank transactions and transactions of their historical transaction records. Mm -hmm. And then also because the mobile phones are issued that are connected to a social identity number, they're able to see which cell repeaters is connected um, that your mobile phone is connected into in a specific time period, and they find the person very, very quickly. And just on a side note, there's a kind of a, a notion where if you go to a public venue in a cafe um, in, in Korea, you can leave your wallet. Everyone leaves their wallet, their mobile phones, and their computers on, on public places. And so I had friends from Australia saying, what's going on here, Jay? You're such a nice wonderful trustworthy <laughs> nation and i pointed up there's 50 cctv cameras all lying around the place so i think it's a double-edged sword mm-hmm. and we again it's not yes or no it's mm-hmm. not black or white mm-hmm. there's multiple shades of gray and often when we talk about technology and i'm one of them to be honest is that we are so encompassed on the zeros and ones and we kind of think that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but that's that's probably the challenge that we have to overcome. And you know, I, I I think the government's taking the right steps to having these conversations, opening it up for um, consultation, requesting feedback. But I think we need to do more. If people wanted to get more information at any kind of level about this scheme, about the history of it, about the intended applications, where mm-hmm. could they go? What would you recommend? Good question. So um, I think it's the DTA, um, which mm-hmm. is a uh, uh, which is the government organization in charge of the Digital Transformation Agency. If I recall correctly, that may have changed since the government change. Um, um, that's a probably good start. Um, the government is really pushing this hard. You're just going to see it a lot in the media. Keep track with it on 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 the relevant news channels. Um, there are a lot of academic research going into the space as well concurrently what is a better alternative to federated systems for example so a lot of my work is on the notion of self-sovereign identity mm-hmm. where the issuer and the wallet holder and the verifier all all dispersed and they work or interact with a blockchain that no one controls right so you know think about how we can do this in a better way or an appropriate way most importantly i think there needs to be a level of self-awareness around what you share online, will it, can it be traced back to you or it, can it be linked back to you? Can you be singled out from the information that you share online? Mm-hmm. Um, I, can, I see many examples where, although you might think you're anonymous, if I'm able to weave in and out different parts of your online f- or digital footprint, I have a fairly good way of actually making sense of who you are. Sure. And And... Does that have implications on you? It may not. Most of us, fine, you can find me on Facebook anyway, so who cares? 
But if it has significant implications on you as an individual, and if it's something that you are uncomfortable with, just be mindful. Thank you very much. You've given us quite a lot to think about. (laughs) And um, the digital ID uh, information, there's a lot out there. There's an interesting article that Dr. Jay Jong has written in the conversation. As he says, it was four years ago, but there is certainly a lot that's still relevant in there. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. No worries. Triple R. You're on Biden Twitter on 3 Triple R. You were just listening to Ray Ags, Back of My Hand. And uh, thank you very much, Carl, and to Joe Eaton for lining up the tracks tonight. Just in the last few minutes of the show, I wanted to talk a little bit about something I alluded to at the top of the show with regard to the trial of Sam Bankman Freed, who people may remember is a. He founded um, FTX, which is a cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, in 2019. And that was heralded as being one of, you know, the last bastions of of ethics and sense in the the crypto world at one point in time. Um, And that turned out to be not quite the case. And uh, in the last week or so, actually, over the last couple of weeks, um, he's been on trial uh, in the US for enormous amounts of fraud and was found guilty of that. Um, He'll be sentenced Later in, I think it's in next, March. Next year, yeah, yeah. I think I read. Yeah. Um, so for the moment, it's just this kind of limbo state for him, I guess. But it's been a very interesting thing to watch. And I kind of wanted to talk about it a little bit because it's an interesting point in time from where we were about a year ago with regard to the world of cryptocurrency and what's been going on there. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like, I mean, a, a big, a, a si- you know, seismic shift, I guess, um, or fall um, for some of the greats in, in, in the crypto space. Um, I've... Yeah, I've only kind of caught the tail of it, um, but was reading about, um, yeah, the, the guilty verdict and um, I guess around just some of the responses from the people around him or, or people, you know, the more general public and, and people who are interested in, in the crypto space. Um, yeah, what are your what are your thoughts, Lily? <laughs> well, so it was, it's been interesting to watch. There have been a lot of people over time who have been looking at the cryptocurrency industry overall and saying, how, how is this holding together? How is this working? Because it looks like from, if you, you know, economists and so on, people who have spent a lot of time reporting on the economy have looked at it and said, it really feels like there are some companies that have pretty uneven dependencies on each other when it comes to some of these funds that they're building up. And mm-hmm. FTX was one that got singled out early on, FTX being a trading platform, and they had their own token. Um, but that that was something that had always been downplayed, and people made very confident statements to investors about it. Mm. Um, when Whenever anybody kind of looked at the amount of information that was available, sort of looked above board. And so for a long time, it was sort of felt okay look there might be something here but but nothing's nothing's it, look, to it looks yeah. okay yeah um and so ftx as an exchange it grew really rapidly and it was this group of people who had come out of this um this fund that they had called alameda research and mm-hmm. they called it that so that it would get funding because at the time a bank would not give you a loan if you said you were such and such token or coin or whatever um and so they called it alameda research because then it sounded a little more legit and they would be more likely to get loans what was happening was FTX being run as a separate business as an exchange, it meant that people were putting a lot of money in, trading money with other people, they were holding all kinds of things. Um, and what it transpired that um, when some people had shaken the faith of, of investors in this exchange and there was a bit of a, a run on the exchange, people tried to withdraw the money, it just wasn't there. Yeah. And that was because about 65 billion of it had been siphoned off into into Alameda research and there had been this whole um back you know backdoor loophole thing. <laughs> yeah, recirculate or reinvest investing of of those funds yeah elsewhere yeah. to support. Well, not yeah. even investing, like just spending it spending. sometimes. Okay. Like literally just the money was just gone. Like it wasn't even like it had been reinvested in any other place. It was just like, oh, yeah, we need groceries. You know, but on a larger scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so they they gave themselves a line of credit and gave themselves the ability to dip into negative balances without setting off Help them flags. up. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and when this all came out, when people decided, there was a very a famous guy who said, look, I'm not trusting FTX anymore. And so a lot of people like, fine. I'm going to take my money out and turns out just wasn't there and that that ruined a lot of people um but what has been really interesting has been watching the way that all of the founders of Alameda and FTX have been 
um, testifying against each other, um, except for, well, all of the other founders have have entered plea deals Mm. about this, except for Sam Bankman-Fried, who went on to then um, defend himself. Uh, He had lawyers and so on, but um, the last couple of weeks have been a line of inquiry, which has been very interesting to watch. Really worth reading up on the way that he defended himself against the cross-examination, because it was just nail-biting. It's like that dream where you're, you're going into an exam and you're not prepared for it, but he was being cross-examined in front of a jury. It was wild. Anyway, um, definitely a really um, interesting time. Mm. It's He's looking at like decades in prison, but it is also something that I think has shaken a lot of people's faith at the time and certainly going into the future as to what things will look like. And it's, it's worth a read. The Verge's reporting on this in particular has been extremely spicy, and I would recommend looking over it. Yeah, no, I mean, um, it, it, you know, I've been reading that, you know, this is this case is kind of setting a precedent or aiming to set a precedent. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where we go to from here, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's certainly going to be something I think that um, in the future we'll be looking at things for um, when it comes to the crypto stuff, because it's been very hard to pin anybody down for anything like to actually go to trial so it's, it's an interesting case yeah we're we're quickly running out of um time seconds um so um yeah thanks so much for joining us for bite into it tonight um you've been with myself ash and and lily um it's been a pleasure to join you lily and we've had carl on the panel of course um yeah spinning our music um thanks also to our guest um dr J. Um, from Deakin University, um, who we spoke to about the national ID scheme or digital ID scheme. Um, we had a really in-depth chat um, and we'll post some links uh, on the Biden top page so that you can follow that up further. Any last notes, uh, Lily? I just want to thank the talks producers, Lulin, Adam Christo. We've been Biden to it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. For right now, stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Kuru. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 